for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series in all other categories. The HBO Max original series, The Flight Attendant, starring Kaylee Cuoco, is a story of how an entire life can change in one night. A flight attendant, played by Kaylee Cuoco, wakes up in the wrong hotel, in the wrong bed, with a dead man, and no idea what happened. The dark comedic thriller is based on the novel of the same name by New York Times bestselling author Chris Bojillian. All episodes now streaming on HBO Max. We're joined today with the creators of HBO Max's Hacks, Lucia Agnello, Paul W. Downs, and Jen Statsky on Crew Call. Tell us about how all of you got together. Was it all Broad City and then Paul and Lucia, you knew, you've known each other since UCB? Yes, so Paul and I met in a level one UCB class in the mid 2000s and mid, what is that decade? I don't know. But uh, we met in a level one class and we took a couple classes together and we were friends. And then we kind of were dating, but kind of were just- You know, there's a limbo period. You know how it goes. <laughs> will they, actually... won't they. It's, it was the will they, won't they of the Upright Citizens Brigade co alt comedy scene at the time. Yes, and everyone's going, will they, won't they? Or we were saying, will they, won't they? And they were going, who? <laughs> and um, so then we started um, dating and kind of writing together and working together. It was all just an excuse to hang out and be together. And then Jen and I met in 2007 or 2008, Jen? 2007, yeah, end of 2007, I think. And we were in a sketch comedy group where we were the actually only two girls in the group. And then slowly but surely they stopped emailing just the two of us and we were, yeah, we were kicked out of the group. Yeah. But, but we friends. learned, <laughs> yes, we became uh best friends and learned that we love to work together and same with Paul and then yeah kind of ever since then we've been in each other's orbit and I always say they're my favorite writers and I just beg them to let me hang out <laughs> and uh work with them and yeah and then we ended up working on Broad City together but we had yeah we had known each other for for years before that we kind of all figure out ways to collaborate on kind of everything. We've written a movie together. Jen was on set for our movie Rough Night as a punch-up writer and, and, and other stuff too. So yeah, we just love hanging out together and just freaking chilling and pitching. How did Hacks come together? I thought of it. Um, <laughs> so untrue, untrue. Any, any man needs two good typists, so Paul thought of it. <laughs> I said one is an executive assistant and one is a personal. <laughs> Who types faster and who's better at a chakarato? You know? A little uh, iced espresso. No, we, um, we, were, we were on a road trip to Portland, Maine, on our way to a Monster Jam monster truck rally, if you can believe it. <laughs> because I was filming a character for my Netflix special, my Netflix character special. And as kind as Jen is to say that we are her favorite writers, we kidnap Jen because she's <laughs> our favorite writer and bring her anywhere we're doing anything. Yes. And this was no exception. They came, Lucia and Jen both came to pitch jokes and help make me funnier. And on that road trip is when we first started talking about 
um, female comedians and a lot of uh, great older female comedians who'd never had the acclaim or the shows or the Kennedy Center honors that a lot of their male counterparts have and about sort of what is cool comedy versus what is uncool comedy. And the idea was born, um, honestly, was it your dad's car we were in, Jen? Yeah. I was, for, I was gonna some, name the type, but I don't remember the car. For it's a, it was a Honda Pilot, I believe. It was born in, a, in the a Honda Pilot, which for some reason, I don't, I mean, it was a Netflix special. I don't know why you weren't offered transportation, <laughs> but for oh. some reason, some reason my I picked up my dad's car in Boston and then picked you guys up and I do remember Paul for one of your sketches you being absolutely naked in the back seat of my dad's car. I did have my ass my bare ass on in his car. I hope it's okay. And actually I think that is in the final cut if anybody it is. It is. It. You can see Jasper Cooch, whose catchphrase is famously everyone knows say it with me big drugs. Everybody all Every, your listeners are chanting. Everybody knows. Anyway, we're we're talking way too much. <laughs> So, so which which comedians were you figuring never received Kennedy honors? Well, have there been any? <laughs> any female comedians receiving? I don't. I don't know. know. Is there a li we got to find a list? Well, I think you know if you go back to somebody like, for example, Elaine May, an absolute genius. She had the two person show. She goes on to direct, and then something like Ishtar happens, which you know, maybe didn't happen in the right moment and there's whatever critical response, but that, you know, whether it was movie jail or whether she was like, I don't want to do, put myself through this again. That's a, that's somebody who we should have 30 movies made by her and we don't. And that's a problem for me personally, <laughs> as just in a simple example. <laughs> yeah. We just kind of, there's so many women like, like that, you know, other men and, and people who were allowed so many chances so many chances to fail so many chances to make a mistake and then and, and people just let it go and we looking at women like that we were like oh one mistake damned you sometimes it's not even a mistake sometimes it was just something you did in the, the cultural narrative people society decided it was one thing and they were done and so that was very much so yeah it was born out of a discussion of, of that and wow. advanced that happened to her in the, our story. And it's about how she then kind of circumvented the traditional Hollywood structure and still made a career for herself, a bit on the fringes, a bit on the outside. And what that does to you psychologically is, is really part of what we wanted to ex explore, especially season one. Now, I was gonna save this question until the end, but now you got me asking it now. Um, so the whole notion of, you touch on this, the whole kind of cancel culture thing, uh, given what Ava's going through, and and in this circumstance, you're mentioning Deborah. Is this something? I mean, is this really affecting comedy now? Like, do we really? It used to be. I would ask stand-up comedians, "What can't you joke about?" And we're like, they're like, "We can joke about anything. There's nothing taboo. Nothing." And now it's like. I don't know if Eddie Murphy, I don't, and I think Eddie Murphy may even be thinking this. I don't know if Eddie Murphy could get away doing his act from the eighties. People would probably take offense to it. I don't know if Robin Williams would have been able to get away with a lot today that he was doing. Is this something on your minds, on everyone's minds? And is this, is this going to crimp funny going forward? Or at least in the immediate future? You know, I think, Obviously, so much has changed even in the past 
15 minutes since we've started this pod, you know, things are changing. <laughs> um, but I think the truth is cancel culture is nothing new, you know, especially if we're talking about marginalized people being cast aside, right? I'm like, Sand and Witch Trials is the original cancel culture, you know? There's a woman who's doing self-pleasure or who's gay and she's a witch, you know? I think that, that that kind of a thing happened all the time. What's happening now a little bit more, I think, is it comes from more of a progressive uh, point of view. But I still think that art should be shocking. Art should be challenging. Art should be, um, and comedy should be sometimes taboo, especially satire. But when you're speaking truth to power, I think it's the most effective. I think what's important and what I do think people are more understanding of now is what your target is and where you're punching. So I think there's plenty of things Robin Williams or Eddie Murphy could do and succeed gloriously on, but their language might have to change if they're talking about certain groups of people. And that's okay. I mean, you know, I'm not inventing this line of thought because um, Cat Williams just said it, but it's like, if you can't do your act and not say a couple slurs, you're not funny enough to do an act. You know, that is truly his, I'm paraphrasing, but you know, like there's ways around it and ways that you can still talk about really taboo stuff and the things that make us different and the things that, you know, are even stereotypes. But I do think that there's a way in which you can do it that isn't harmful. Yeah. If you're already, if all you can do is make fun of people who are already getting made fun of all the time, you're not that funny. Get a job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and kind of like Paul's saying, like cancel culture only became this thing that there was this name for it. I, I feel like when it started happening to like straight white cis men, like it, it's consequences for your actions. And like Paul's saying, marginalized groups have had to deal with that forever and and consequences for your actions that you don't even deserve and so then now it just feels like we needed to give this name and rail against this thing when it's like oh but but what you've said is your target was punching down why why do you need to attack a group that has been lawn attacked and you're not saying anything new and you're not saying anything fresh and you just want to be able to say whatever you want without consequence because that's what you've enjoyed and benefited from for years and years the, the other thing I love about the show is kind of this, it takes you in, this, this feels very real. Young comedian, uh, you know, looking for the mentorship of an older comedian and, and kind of the old versus young clash. Um, I'm going to share, <laughs> I'm going to show, share a little story with you of, of how this resonates. And I'm wondering if, if Deborah's based on anyone in particular, I was friends with um, Kip King before he died, who was a founder of the Groundlings and, and Chris Kattan's dad. And he once told, um, in, we, we went to this theater workshop and he once got on stage and he told the story about how he was shut out by Jerry Lewis. And Jerry Lewis was this guy who he adored. I think this was around the 50s, maybe 60s. Jerry was forming some sort of sketch group was at the height of his fame. One day, Kip, Kip was part of this group. I think it was to be on television. He goes to try to get on the Paramount lot, cannot get out. All of a sudden, Jerry has shut him out completely. Oh. He wow. doesn't know what he's done wrong, never knew what he did wrong. Years, decades go by. He passes him at the Monterey Jazz Film Festival. And Jerry goes, just walks by him and goes, hi, Kip, and keeps going. 
Um, and then just Kip had all these great stories. Like he would walk into Jerry's house. He would see those big, I don't know if you remember the guy that would do the, the cartoons of Jerry, you know, you'd be standing in the grocery line and, you know, there'll be, and it'd be a donation thing for his Labor Day special. And there, there was always this big cartoon drawing of Jerry with the big mouth and everything. Like the Al Hirschfeld or something? Yeah, the Al Hirschfeld. And he had something like that in his foyer. And, and there were clowns and Kip walks in and begins to cry. This is like before he was, Jerry didn't let him on the Paramount lot. <laughs> Kip walks into the foyer, begins to cry and, and, and is just moved by this. And, and Jerry comes up behind him and goes, yes, I know the clowns, the clowns. Um, but, but anyway, what this is all leading to, I normally don't share stories like this, is I'm just curious about Deborah Vance and your inspirations for her. Were you hearing stories about Joan Rivers? Were you hearing stories about certain people that fed into her and the psyche that goes with an accomplished comedian? They're paranoid and yet they've sold out to opulence, which is, they love it, but yet it's their enemy creatively. Absolutely. I mean, we, I love that story, first of all. We need more of those. So <laughs> keep sharing. Interrupt me at any time to share more stories. But, um, you know, we, we drew on a lot of different people. She's an amalgamation. So Lucia mentioned Elaine May. She, in, in our um, fictional history of this character, she started doing a stage show with her husband, kind of like Nichols and May. They had a sitcom where they were a married couple and then had a very famous divorce, not unlike Lucille Ball and Rick Arnaz, or Desi Arnaz. Um, then she started hitting the road and she was a road dog stand-up, like so many people we could name, whether it's Susie Essman or Paula Poundstone or Elaine Boozler. And then she ended up kind of leaning into this caricature of herself and making a mint and building this fortress around her and doing QVC and other kinds of commercial endeavors, not unlike Joan Rivers. So she really is a lot of different people. Um, none of the specific stories in the show come from uh, any comics or anything. I think it was just sort of like the, oh, and you know who else there's a lot of is Debbie Reynolds and her experience in Las Vegas and her getting like, you know, scammed by her managers or her ex-husbands or what have you, you know, and her experience of being welcomed by Vegas, but then the trouble with her casino. There's So there's a lot of showbiz veterans that we drew on because I do think it's kind of a, iconic idea and character that the women like this i named a million um but there's no like we don't we didn't get any like behind the scenes gossip wish we had um <laughs> you know to draw on it's Maybe all wants to donate some we'll take yeah it. oh yeah well absolutely we're all ears but um but most of everything that happened was you know an invention in terms of the stories and the you know the relationship between her and hannah ava the character ava played by hannah einbinder Tell me about finding Hannah. What, when did you first see her? And as far as locking her down for the lead role, which she's, and talk about comedy legacy gold and being Lorraine Newman's daughter, it just brings all this resonance. Um, but locking her down, was that an easy feat with HBO Max or was there, they had to test her and go through audience testing and all that other stuff or no? Well, so we first saw her tape in, I want to say late February, maybe early March was when she first did a pre-read. And so we saw the tape that was brought in um, from Jeannie McCarthy and Nicole Alvarez's office. 
Um, I'm not sure if they had ever had her in before. They may have, so. but none of us were familiar with her. And, and we called her back and what I believe she had said was her first callback of her life. Um, so it was a good one for her. But uh, so we then, we, we at the time we were actually just um, casting the pilot. Um, and so then we ended up because COVID happened and then we had also attached Gene and HBO Max was really excited about that. So because of that, we ended up getting a series order we then went to go start writing the show and then we're kind of still casting in the process of writing. And we had her come in, I'd say probably at least three times, if not more. And may I say, we also cast a very wide net and we saw over 400 women, yes. different age ranges, all different points of view. And we, we kept coming back to Hannah mm -hmm. because she is 25 and was a stand-up. We did know she was a stand-up and we knew she had done a Colbert set, mm -hmm. but we actually didn't know about her lineage lineage um at all and so yeah. we did end up cat screen testing i think three women she was one of them and you know i a ton of credit to hbo max and the executives and linda lawi are are their casting uh head but they didn't push us to get somebody famous at all they i mean sure i'm sure they would have loved it and maybe it suggested some names but um, it really was, they, they were very open to, we have Jean, the, the newcomer can be an unknown if she can go toe to toe with Jean. And so that was all Hannah to, you know, really prove that she belonged in those scenes and in that role. And in the screen test, which of course was so awkward because they had to be like 10 feet away and there was plexiglass between them and all the rest of us are, you know, masked and shielded and all that. So it was, it was a weird way to be like, show us the chemistry, honey when it was like a very sterile environment, but she, um, she killed it. She did a great job. She was kind of, you know, she blew it. She blew everyone away every time. She also did something slightly different for every callback, which also was exciting. You know, she, she never stopped working on the character in the sides, even if they were the same pieces of material every time you could tell she really was committed to it. And then, yeah, the, I think it was the screen test when we said, okay, let's Google all of these women who are coming in to make sure there's no warrant for their arrest. We got to do a deep dive. We got to go to the dark web. Yeah, we went to Silk Road. And that's when we found out that she was Lorraine Newman's daughter, which was so weird because, as I mentioned, she was 25 and a comedian herself. So you could believe this woman's a comedy writer because there were some amazing actors who came in for the role who whether they were too beautiful or too, you know, you just, they didn't necessarily feel like a comedy writer. This girl was, so she really was the part. And then to find out this weird kind of profound background that she had, it was very trippy for us to find that out because we were like, because in a way we, we were honestly like, oh damn, I hope nobody th thinks that this preceded her because we certainly didn't know it, you know, and didn't influence us in any way. But also when we found out it was, like I said, a little bit, I mean, it like almost gave us goosebumps because we're like, whoa, this girl has totally. such a direct line to what the show is about. Yeah, you know? yeah. It was really weird. It was the universe kind of. David, you have to see The Flight Attendant. It's a Kaylee Cuoco like we've never seen before. It's a dark comedic thriller. She's a flight attendant. She wakes up across the globe in a hotel room with a man she just met who happens to now be dead. It is thrilling, hysterical. You have to watch it. All episodes are on HBO Max and the series is up for Emmy consideration in the Outstanding Comedy Series in all other categories. 
tell me about the finale. Uh, what were you guys, what was, what was it that you guys wanted to resolve? Was it kind of getting them on a, on a more even footing, um, especially after her, her dad's funeral, uh, Ava's, Ava's funeral, dad's funeral, and then with the cliffhanger that, you know, the cliffhanger is very real because you become, and I'm sure a lot of Scott Rudin's assistants feel this. <laughs> uh, you know, there are these people that are mentors, but they're acerbic. You want to serve them and do them right. But at the same time, you're venting to someone and you're venting every detail and iota out of your head for mm -hmm. your own therapy. And then somehow that backfires on you. Uh, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm yeah. sure the dilemma yeah. that she's in goes on every single day in Hollywood. Yeah, I, totally. Yeah, I, I think I think we just wanted, you know, with the finale, we wanted to be we're always trying to like write these people as grounded and real and make them feel like real people. And the, the truth is, is that they've both done a lot of growing in the season, but personal growth isn't a straight perfect line and then it's over like you you grow and then you backslide and you grow and you're working it out and so it felt very organic to us that in, in both ways Deborah would backslide she would in the in the face of this betrayal by Ava she would feel scared and she would go back to her old ways and she would do something like slap her and Ava would backslide by you know, calling, getting drunk and popping a zanny and, and betraying her by in that way. And so it just felt very um, truthful to us that this is how these people would behave in this situation. And, you know, it sets up, yeah, it, it sets up what we think is a very juicy place to go moving forward. Uh, episode five is amazing. Um, you know, she meets this guy, uh, it seems like kismet and he loves her and understands her, but he's not, he's not saying a lot to Ava and then he commits suicide. <laughs> tell me, tell me about the inspiration. I mean, that was such a great uh, Island episode. Um, tell me, tell me about building that. Well, unfortunately it's really true to Vegas that that happens a lot. You know, it's kind of a phenomenon there. People go blow all their money on drugs and gambling and maybe company for the night and uh and then they end it and that was something you know we really wanted to explore vegas beyond like just the party weekend even though that is sort of ava's only experience of partying in vegas because as she says she's just living in the casino and busting her ass for this difficult boss um but we really wanted to explore a lot of the goings-on about living in vegas and when you live in vegas you know about that i think you People are aware like, oh yeah, they, it happens a lot and the casinos clean it up real fast. You don't even know it happens. Um, you know, cause there's a real darkness as much as it's fun and it's glamorous and it's so hospitable because they, they're in hospitality. It's also a place of, you know, some darkness. And we, that's what we really wanted the show's DNA to do was really fun, really watchable, really funny, but also grounded and real and have those moments that are, you know, um, sort of the darker parts of life. It's also a real turning point for Ava where she realizes that she um, might need to change her entire personality, as she says. <laughs> so for us to be able to give her an opportunity to almost come to that by herself and then have somebody try to pull her in the other direction, George tries to convince her that she's actually great the way she is. 
and see that she, if somebody gives her that out, she'll take it for a moment. But truthfully, she does know that she's, she needs to make some adjustments and, and or to have that um, episode followed by um, the new eyes 106, where they go on their retreat. It, it wasn't ever uh, the plan to release them together, but it weirdly kind of fits really nicely where there's one where they're all out, she's out, Abe's out in the town. And then the next one, Deborah and Ava are kind of in a little bit of a island onto themselves. It's, it's just a kismet thing that happened. Again, I love the universe. So I, I have a silly question. Why did it take so long to come up with a title for this? Because Hacks is a great title. I, I love that you said that. Thank you. <laughs> we think you're right. You know, that was the initial title. And the truth is, is that it was just kind of held up with some red tape because there was another show in development somewhere else. So they're like, oh, you probably can't get it. Wait, so we, was it the CBS 1980 series? <laughs> I think it was I think it was a maybe. CBS thing. I don't know. It was I don't a even, yeah. It was, right, CBS. I don't even know what the show was or if it was Hacks or Hack or, I don't even know. We were always, it was always Hacks for us. And then they said, it can't be Hacks. And there was like nine months where it wasn't Hacks. And, and then so we were like, guys. A million titles, all of which really good. <laughs> we, we really just couldn't beat it. You know, we couldn't beat it. And then, um, he said, can it be hacks? And he said, let's go check and it out. And I think there was some, you know, there was some um, begging, borrowing and pleading and it ended up happening, which is great because it, it always felt like it was hacks to us. It just yeah. feels like, you know, that thing of when we first, I feel like when Abby and Alana first came up with Broad City, it was like, it felt right to them, even though people were like, what? What do you mean? Is it a broad show? You know what I mean? But then it just became more than, it just became emblematic of the show. Anyway, hacks always was the title for us. Paul, when do you decide, and is it hard for you to cast your, you know, when do you decide you're going to take a part in something that you're writing, and is it hard to convince the room, hey, I'm the, I'm the one for this role? I, I no, no, no. It's always hard for, for them to convince me. I mean, I never, you know, <laughs> Jan and Lucia and the writers room beg me usually do most of the parts, but uh, no, I, um, I don't know. I feel like they, we come in with an idea usually, and it's like, oh, and, and it would be fun if I could do this, you know? Yeah. And luckily it's usually just the creators who are doing the casting. So didn't have, doesn't it? He never has to convince me. That's true. Anyway. But you know, I've never been bold enough to be like, I'm number one, that I'm the lead of the show, but watch out. You know what, watch out. <laughs> I'm just getting did warmed you, up as the tagline of the show it says. Did you read others for Jimmy? No, no, it was it was Jimmy in the, in the pitch and in the pilot script and you know we pitched it with that because you know an attachment like mine can really green light a show <laughs> well Again, for a very long time it was just you and gene that's right paul and gene yeah. like like paul that. was the first person cast to this that's actually true wow so i don't think we've, i don't think we've ever said that some might call it a paul w downs vehicle at first <laughs> yeah at first, <laughs> at first and then the true queen <laughs> How was the development of this? Was this very fast? And did you have more freedom on this? You know, for, for years and years, we've heard HBO has set the standard in the town of, oh, they don't give notes, or if they give notes, they're so, so smart, and they're not dumb. And, and, and with HBO Max, I'm wondering, did that, did you feel a lot of freedom? Did you feel like we made the show we wanted to make? The development was both fast 
and not fast because of us. Because we originally had the idea for this five and a half years ago. So Paul and Jen and I have been kind of internally developing it for a while, just always pitching on it, talking about it, thinking, you know, sending each other emails at one in the morning for ideas. Um, and so, but by the time we actually pitched it, which Jen, I think you usually know exactly when that was. Yeah, May, 2019. May 2019. End of April into May, 2019 is when we, when we finally were able to, to pitch the show. Cause yeah, like Lucia said, we were lucky enough. Like we were pulled in a million directions. There was Brad City, Paul and Chia made their movie. I was on good play. Like we, we just never kind of felt we were in the right place to do it. And then, yeah, we pitched it um, in 2019 and, and we've spoken about this before, but like all credit in the world goes to Susanna Macos at HBO Max. Cause more than anyone, she heard the pitch and she, you know, got it instantly. She bought it in the room. She was immediately like, have you read Debbie Reynolds book? I'm going to send it to you. Like she just immediately got it, which as a creator is a very, when you're pitching to execs, like it's, it's a pretty rare thing. Like some, sometimes you're like, oh, they love it. They're going to buy it. But like to feel that someone was like connected to it on that level was just like really, I think, special. Um, and, and yeah. oh, sorry. Yeah. No, no, go no, please, please. Uh, no, I, I was as like then, then yeah, it was. They were super supportive and and really got it. And and I want to hear what Paul has to say about it. I was just going to say that yet yeah, not only was um, that pitch so well received, but also she said things like, "Oh, have you read this book? Have you read this autobiography? This yeah. would be a good thing to read." Like she really understood the kind of character we were talking about. It was almost like we were on our first kickoff call while we were still pitching. Yeah, <laughs> which was cool. Yeah, and then you know you always you always I think have that thing of okay, well once it becomes a company, once it's it's a show and they're going to make the show and other people at the company start to weigh in, what is that going to be like? But also Sarah Aubrey and Casey Bloys really understood the show, and I think what you said is really true notes were minimal and very smart and they believed in what we were doing and we did pitch the whole um, arc of the season and in fact had thoughts about where the series itself goes so because we've been kicking it around for too long we you know we had a lot and um as helpful as they were i think they were also very um in line with us and, and same with jim donnelly and everyone at universal they were super supportive and you know didn't, they gave time, some notes, but they were always additive and- Thoughtful. Thoughtful and great. And, you know, we really are so lucky that um, the, everybody's been just great. I hope everybody, we, I hope the gangs gets to stay together for years. <laughs> have, have you broke story on season two yet? No. Well, Chia <laughs> and Jen haven't, I have. I'm gonna pitch it to them, no. Um, <laughs> Again, um, we're just, we gotta type it, you know, Paul just goes <laughs> and our fingers start clacking and then it's like, <laughs> a truth is, is that we, like Paul said, we do know where the series goes and we do have some tent poles set up, but in terms of actually breaking the season, we, ha we have yet to do that. But we do know, we have some things that we know where we're headed for sure. And we're excited to bring certain characters in certain directions and see more people more often. And we're definitely aware of, of how people are feeling about the characters and, and love it. And I feel it's only makes us more excited to give them more. Can you tease anything? And I mean, anything like they're going to reopen the buffet at Caesars. <laughs> <laughs> you no, know, there was a storyline that didn't end up in this season where 
Ava really wanted to eat at the buffet and they were like, well, you can't because you're an employee of the, of the casino. And she's like, no, I'm not. I work for Deborah Vance. And they're like, well, technically you live here. You can't eat here. And she's like, I'll pay for it. And they're like, well, it's actually an insurance issue. You really can't. She's like, all I want is crab rangoon. Just let me grab some crab rangoon. And they're like, for breakfast? Anyway, there was a runner, a crab rangoon runner that if we can work it in somehow, I love to work it in. I missed that one. But um, what else could we tease? I, I wish we could. I don't uh, know. I mean, you know, in the finale, oh. uh, Barbara from HR is mentioned. And I think Jimmy and Kayla might be headed to HR at some point in season two. I'll say that. that that's, that is a, right. that's a teaser. But we will be meeting Barbara from HR. What about, are there any... Um, is there going to be any stunt casting? Is like Penn and Teller going to make a cameo? <laughs> you know, we almost did it this season, actually, Penn and Teller. We, we've been, we discussed it. It's been, some emails have flown. Oh, yes. With COVID, it was really tricky, you know, yeah. but hopefully as the world opens up, we can do more of that, especially because you're right, like people, the, the Vegas stunt casting, I think is really fun um, and would be really great. So, yes, I, I would like yeah. to do that. But yeah, it was, it was, that was such a challenge of uh, production and COVID is like, normally you're like, oh, they'll hop on a flight and they'll do it. They'll come in for one day, but you have to like two days before you get to test everyone. Like it, it, it really made production much more strict in that way. So it was limited creatively. So hopefully yeah, season two, masks off, ready to go. <laughs> when, when you weren't shooting in Vegas, where were, where, like, where's Deborah's mansion? So the mansion itself is in Bel Air. That was another interesting thing with COVID, there was no permitting and filming in Beverly Hills. So it limited a lot of the larger homes that were available to shoot in, but we found one that was actually still being finished. It was still being built. I'm sure to this day, it's still being finished. It's probably still being finished because it's about 60,000 square feet. Um, and we filmed there and anytime you see them going in or out of the house, like through the main hallway, um, up the stairs or in the front door, that's the actual house. But then the rooms themselves were built to match the house and then decorated by <clears throat> John Carlos and Ellen Doros. Doros. I was going to mispronounce her name, Doros, um, <laughs> our production designer and set decorator. So they, they were all on stages. So we kind of did a mix. And then actually the back of the house was a different house in Bel Air. Yes. So there's actually three pieces of that house that are different that all get sewn yeah. together. I, some might say effortlessly, I don't know. <laughs> it was really ethical. <laughs> Outside of Hacks, can each of you share with me what some of your next projects are? Absolutely. Babysitter's Club season two coming to Netflix soon. I love that show. <laughs> I didn't get to direct any this season, but I still um, work as an executive producer on it. And Let's get in front, get that in front of every little baby girl and baby boy in the world, please. <laughs> okay. Um, we have a couple of things that aren't announced, so I don't know if we can, you know, we have things in development, but you never know. You just never know. Um, a question I wanted to ask you uh, is um, when it comes to feature comedies nowadays, and I know like you said during the interview, things are changing every 15 minutes. Um, when it comes to a feature comedy nowadays, if you have an idea for one, is it just the streamers that you know are going to jump on it? Or do you think there's a chance for it to go on the big screen? Just because 
even before the pandemic shut down theaters, comedies, comedies were becoming harder to do in the wake. It's almost like the hangover happened and then everything mm -hmm. in the wake of the hangover was, was that much harder to break out. Yeah. Um, and I would speak to studio executives about this and they would have crazy theories. They, they would think it was the Trump era that kind of, <laughs> that kind of crimped feature comedy that it was hard to tell jokes. I really didn't buy that. Uh, I think it was a prime time to tell jokes. But I'm, I'm just wondering when it comes to feature comedy nowadays, if you have an idea for one, is it basically uh, best to take it to Netflix or HBO Max and we're good? Well, you know, I'm hoping that honestly with pandemic, people are starting to want to go to the theater again more, you know, more so than, because I found over the pandemic, there were a lot of movies, as you know, released on the streamers, which I did watch. I watched movies on streamers, but there's something about going to the theater and having that communal experience. It's so fun and I miss. So even, even and granted, I'm somebody who works in this industry, so maybe I'm more prone to go, but I'm even more prone to go now because I would say if I had a screener of something, well, we can just watch it. I don't necessarily have to go and see it, but now I'm like, oh, I would much rather go to the theater. So I'm hoping that there is kind of a, a resurgence of that. And then in terms of comedy, I don't know. I mean, this was announced. So Lucia and I had an idea for Kevin Hart that um, Universal was making. And so I think depending on his schedule, <laughs> you know, maybe maybe there's, it, you know, I think it depends. It just depends, but. But you're not wrong. About seeing a movie just on a huge screen, especially when it's a big comedy, a big prep no. all. I mean, come on, there's not, there's, you can't. Especially laughing to get, yeah, yeah, it's a comedy in a theater. I'm like so Bad funny. Trip, seeing that, if I got to see that in a room with a couple hundred oh, people. Oh, that would have been a, I mean, I think so many people would have gone to the theater. To see yeah. That. yeah, sorry, Jen, you were saying? No, I, I was just, you're not wrong though, that like as a writer producer for a few years now, we've heard like comedies are hard, big, you know, comedy movies, they're only going to make a couple a year. And it's like, it's just that thing where it's like, no one's doing it until one person does and it works. And then every, you know, it's like, it's so cyclical. Like it'll, there'll be some huge studio comedy in the next year or two and it, it'll do amazing. And then it, they'll, everyone will want one. Like it, it's just kind of that weird ride we're all on where you're like okay fine they're not doing it now and then something will happen and they will we wrote a movie maybe it'll be that movie hey hey that's right we did write a movie you guys should if you guys are listening to this and saying yeah we want that studio comedy hit us up at uta <laughs> thank you so much thank, thank you. you Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call Podcast on Deadline. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro, and our podcast series has been produced by David Janov. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.